and the words of Bill Burr, how are ya? <laughs> I've been, uh, been listening to Bill Burr, he does it much better than I do. The um, last month, um, or a bit more than a month, I've been uh, out tramping the streets trying to convince people that uh, there could be no better counsellor for the Newlands Auburn Ward of Glasgow than uh, one Dr Ross um, of the uh, of the, the borough. I don't know how well it's working, but anyway, that's what I've been doing, which is why I've not been doing these. So uh, given that it's uh, a weekend full of storms and rain and probably your willingness to stand on a doorstep and listen to me is even lower in the middle of a hurricane than it would be normally, if such a thing can be imagined. I thought I might as well uh, have a little papers review because um, I've spent quite a bit of the first part of this morning incandescent with rage at the kind of stupidities that this country seems to play host to now. I don't understand what's happened. I don't remember the 1980s being like this. I don't remember people being this hopeless all the time. Um, and uh, people in high office, uh, I, I watched Lord Agnew uh, resigning, the government minister, which I'll talk about in a moment, but I watched Agnew resigning and uh, I remember thinking precisely, you know, I, I don't understand how it's possible for an organisation like the Treasury, for example, or the Business Department to behave as badly as it did, uh, and for anybody to have any reaction other than Agnew's reaction. Uh, I, uh, I was interviewed for a job with HMRC uh, a few uh, months ago. Needless to say, I didn't get it. I think they thought about it, but they didn't give it to me after a couple of months, after a, a month. They did say there would be a ranking of candidates, and I suppose, given my advanced age, I would probably have ranked me fairly lowly as well. But uh, I remember there was two civil servants interviewing, and I won't get into the details, but one of them very much came across as a civil servant who was functional, uh, could talk in sentences, had very obviously passed some tests at some point, and was pretty much you know, a metre of expectations. You know, you said things and he understood what you were saying. The other, the joint interviewer, I have no idea um, how he differed from somebody they could have grabbed in the street and brought in uh, some uh, some tongue-tied um, fool asking questions that when you actually tried to clarify what was being asked, he wasn't clear in his own mind what it meant. So we, we seem to have jumped the shark when it comes to having people all over the place in both elected office and in, in the bureaucracy supporting them who are completely and utterly hopeless. And... Uh, and the journalists seem to be a little better and often worse. And I, I don't understand when this happened. Uh, I, always, I always felt that maybe I was just far too critical um, because I'm extremely critical. And increasingly I'm coming to the conclusion that I've not been nearly critical enough. Take, for example, the Sue Gray report into the various supposed Downing Street parties and other shenanigans. The Met Police say that they're not going to investigate things long past so all these breaches of COVID regulations, their general policy is that they're not going to pursue things that are dead and gone. They're only going to, they're only going to turn up at people's doors to stop a continuing breach and then issue fixed penalty notices and so on. So that was the reason why they weren't going to investigate. Now, on the eve of the Sue Gray report, uh, they tell her not to publish anything uh, of any detail regarding um, Johnson and others because that would interfere with their investigation. Now, it strikes me as self-evident that therefore the sequence of events has to be that the Met concludes its inquiries and then Gray produces her completely unredacted report. That seems obvious. But every single journalist, or certainly all the ones I've seen, is now on the hook 
they all believe that Gray has to produce a report that lacks detail, then the Met produce their report, and if the Met's report exonerates Johnson, then nothing can happen to him, and with one bound he is free. Why would that sequence of events be normal, natural, inevitable, whatever? What on earth is it that causes so many people to say, well, the Met are investigating, and they've said that Gray shouldn't release details in her report, therefore she must produce her report early without details. Why would that be the conclusion? Isn't the most natural conclusion that her report will have to wait and then it'll have all the details in it that she wants in it? Why on earth would the Met investigating mean that she should produce a report to the same time scale and an inadequate report? Why wouldn't the most natural thing be for her to produce an adequate report later? How, how is it possible for so many people to agree on such a stupid conclusion? I really don't understand. Genuinely, I'm amazed. And uh, as I say, this this is only one example of a broader problem that uh, the terrible thoughtlessness and groupthink. It's as if the, the, the classic university um, habit of turning words into ideas has been lost and now we only deal in words. Opinions are greatly divided over whether Johnson's going to survive the, the present, uh, I nearly said crisis, crises, endless um, crises. It all began, of course, with a bitter and twisted Dominic Cummings deciding he was going to bring the uh, bring the, the shopping trolley to the canal and throw it in. I think he described Johnson as like a wonky shopping trolley that always tries to steer in the wrong direction. Whichever way you push it, it goes in the opposite direction. So I think uh, all of this began with... Uh, the loss of uh, a bitter and twisted Dominic Cummings and uh, his desire to teach Johnson a lesson. But uh, the opinions differ as to whether he's going to survive. The, the Ukraine crisis and the delay to the Grey report, some people think, will mean that Tory MPs looking to the May elections will at least wait until then. So there won't be the, I think it's 54 letters to uh, Sir Graham Brady to trigger a leadership challenge. Tom Tugendhat was being um, uh, suggested as a possible replacement former military officer. But uh, but Johnson thinks apparently that he might survive after all and uh, and the Operation Big Dog to rescue Johnson um, might not succeed, but events might actually um, blow the armada away even if the deliberate attempts by Johnson to save himself were all um, in, inept and, and failing. But, uh, but as I say, it brings me back, watching Johnson in Operation brings me back, as I've said before, to my decision to vote for Jeremy Hunt because I was still a Tory at the time when the leadership election was going on and having seen Johnson up close and watched him and having heard others talk about his behaviour uh, with a heavy, heavy heart I voted for Jeremy Hunt because I really couldn't see that any responsible person could uh, could put Johnson in number 10. Now the difficulty is that nothing is really possible when it comes to constitutional reform. The public don't seem interested. So when you try to explain, I taught politics and modern studies uh, for a long time, and when you try to explain to people um, things like, for example, uh, how many of their policy preferences are going to be realised in different forms of government, um, and why, therefore, if over any extended period of time, you would never be better off um, taking the opportunity to have your party fully in control some of the time, uh, if the price of that was having the other side fully in control the rest of the time and 
all of the disruption that's caused by policy uh, rapid re changes, rapid reversals of policy. If you sit down any any group of postgraduate students or graduate or or undergraduate undergraduate students led by a, a decent political scientist, any group sitting down and thinking it through, thinking if if I'm entirely rationally self interested and I want certain policies, how many of those policies do I get, and at what price using different systems of election and different uh, characters of parliament, different. Uh, different kinds of assemblies from a fairly chaotic assembly where individuals are responsible directly, such as you might find in the United States at a state level. State legislatures uh, are full of people who are elected regardless of party ticket and are very accountable for individual decisions. The campaigns often revolve around particular uh, issues and support or opposition to them. So what kind of assembly do you want and how many of your policy preferences do you get over time on different kinds of assembly? Now, anyone that sat down and looked at the British system, where something like Johnson represents the party, and then people vote slavishly, they say they voted for Boris Johnson. But of course, very, very few people voted for Boris Johnson. Tory members voted for him to be leader, and constituents voted for him to be an MP. But that's it, nobody else voted for him. But they voted Conservative on the basis of his face, charisma, position, leadership, whatever. And consequently, Tory MPs know that at the next election, a lot of people will do the same. And if Johnson isn't an asset, then they'll lose their seat. Now, we never stop and think, is this a good arrangement? Um, it's almost as if a nation wants making a decision, can he revisit that decision? So the United States Constitution begins with we the people. But the trouble is, it's not we the people, because that would imply an ongoing American people who are prepared to revisit uh, the, the original settlement, and although there has been constitutional amendments, there's no discussion about, you know, really fundamental uh, change. Most of the amendments that took place after the Bill of Rights are kind of tidying things up, like, for example, preventing a future uh, FDR serving four terms. I noticed someone was um, speculating that Biden would go just before the halfway point so that Harris could do 10 years uh, if she can win two elections after he goes. So most of the amendments after the Bill of Rights are tidying up things. Um, they, might, they can be very important, like the 14th Amendment, but nevertheless, they're not really fundamental changes to the arrangements. Like, for example, fundamentally changing the power of small states in the US Senate. It's impossible to do that because people, having made the decision uh, back in the, uh, you know, 200 years ago, um, the, the post-revolutionary period, having made that decision that Rhode Island should be as important as... Uh, as Texas and California in the Senate, uh, nobody can really find a way to uh, to reverse out of that. And in Britain, we've got us in a position where a parliament forms an executive and the public votes slavishly on the basis of party labels and the leaders of those parties um, and the MPs highly reactive and only focused on the short term and the next election um, tolerate this situation rather than trying to conduct a debate with their constituents over what kind of representation they want and what would best serve their interests um, in terms of public policy over any extended period of time. Because people tend to think, if they're Conservatives, I hope the Tories win so that we can get these Tory manifesto promises implemented, most of which I've never read, don't understand, and won't be implemented anyway in their form suggested. And they're being explained in the most general terms, and their operation will be different from how I imagine it to be. And there'll be many other important things taking place during the Parliament that will probably trump all these things that have been put forward. 
So if you stop and think for two seconds, the entire political system is a disaster. And it doesn't make any sense at all for us to continue the way that we do. But we will continue because we don't like talk about fundamental change. Um, Machiavelli said that the Spartans uh, were lucky and that they chanced upon a good constitution and then were successful for, I think, 800 years, he says. And the Roman Republic similarly chanced upon a good constitution. Um, and if, if you don't, if you're not lucky like that and the building has begun badly, then it can only be fixed later um, at enormous expense and great risk to the architect. So far as I can see, um, it, does, it is never fixed at all. The, 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 the fundamental changes that take place in societies take place because of decline and collapse. Um, you, you very rarely get a, a sensible constitutional reform. Um, I suppose you can think of counterexamples. Maybe Ireland's a counterexample. Maybe the, the use of citizens' assemblies to make some fundamental changes. Maybe the loss of authority in Ireland uh, for the church and so on. Maybe, maybe the uh, the changes that took place in the Republic's constitution to, to secure peace in, in Ireland. Maybe that's a counterexample. But generally, it seems to me that people persist uh, with circumstances, arrangements rather, that guarantee bad outcomes. And although the actual flotsam and jetsam changes, uh, the office holders change, the issues change, the things that are causing the, the problems, the fundamental architecture that's causing the problems, that's never changed, save that it's changed for the worse. So we had devolution and we had the, uh, the creation of assemblies that have got responsibility for things that weren't actually the causes of the dissatisfaction in the first place. We have a Holyrood assembly that controls health, education and law and order, none of which was central to the discontent of the Thatcher era that actually inspired the demand for an assembly. So we end up devolving power um, in areas that weren't actually contentious in order to try and satisfy a demand for change which was entirely the, the, the result of dissatisfaction in economic policy, industrial policy, welfare and everything else. It's, we're really, really bad at, uh, at change because we don't seem able to do, to return to what I said a, a moment ago, we don't seem able to do the basic thing of turning words into ideas and then playing with the ideas and working out what the cause and effect relationship is between the, the items, between the things that have causal consequences in the world. Uh, we're just really, really awful at thinking through um, why the how the rules will affect the game, you know, if you if you ask most football fans what would happen if you eliminated offside, they would have to think, you know. I suppose the, the, the more devout fans would know the the hardcore, but an awful lot of people watch football and never think what the, the purpose of the offside rule is. It never occurs to them there's a good reason why it exists. But uh, as I say, Johnson will probably survive. Whether the Tory councillor survives in Newlands Olborn or whether Newlands Olborn chooses um, uh, the uh, <laughs> the Ross animal remains to be seen. Um, but uh, but to put it bluntly, I think I think Boris might be helping me even if he's not helping the country. We sent a, a load of anti-tank missiles. To Ukraine uh, last week, 10 days ago. Many years ago I was in the Territorial Army and uh, the uh, we only had two 84mm anti-tank rounds to fire. These things were full power but they didn't have a warhead on them and uh, they made one heck of a bang through the Carl Gustav anti-tank gun. And given that I was the, uh, the horse that carried this 34 pound lump of steel, 
my pal Alec Campbell when we uh, were discussing who should fire these two rounds. Uh, Alec suggested I should get to fire one of them because uh, it was me that carried the bloody thing. So I, uh, I fired it um, and uh, at 375 metres hit the rusting hulk just at the bottom of the track um, and uh, everyone was mightily pleased given that we only had two of them it would have been a shame to miss. But, uh, but I remember hearing the old uh, Lieutenant Colonel who I think had fought in Korea say something and he said it and the Sergeant Major, the Regimental Sergeant Major who he'd served with joined in the punchline. So Lieutenant Colonel Williamson said, what's the best anti-tank uh, weapon? And uh, we all sort of made suggestions and Williamson and the Regimental Sergeant Major Johnson, who was a bit of a character, uh, both of them laughed and said together in harmony, the best anti-tank weapon is another tank. And uh, they were making a serious point, which is whatever the theoretical advantages of uh, some anti-tank missile, it's a very different thing when a 60-ton lump of steel might come charging forward at 35 miles an hour if you miss and run right over the top of you. Um, so as I say, the, we've sent some missiles to the Ukraine, but the strategic position of the Ukraine is very, very difficult. So these little British missiles, highly advanced, they fly over the top of the target and then the shaped charge explodes and puts 20,000 Celsius plasma through the top of the tank where the armor's thinnest. These, if they're used in a Russian, if the Russians attack, they will kill uh, quite a lot of people, probably. But strategically, um, Ukraine is, an ex is a very, very weak position, um, in part because the Russians are in a... In a uh, in a position to turn off the gas to, you know, Europe. Uh, and the Americans and the British and others have got resources as well. But strategically, this is a very, very difficult position for the Ukrainians and for us. And therefore, the question is, you know, what, what price are you prepared to pay in order to try and coerce the Russians? And uh, what do you think you can achieve? What's your best outcome? Why are you doing this? And if you want to change things in Ukraine, why? Now, one answer is morality matters. Human happiness matters. Self-government matters, democracy matters, and liberty denied anywhere is liberty denied everywhere. And therefore, if the Ukrainians are being put under a jackboot, if they're being made to tolerate autocratic government, that's not something that we should welcome. In fact, it's not something we should even tolerate. And therefore, that's what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to maximise the cause of liberty everywhere in a sort of JFK way. That's fine. How many people are really prepared to pay a price for that? How many people are really prepared to get physically hurt um, or to see others hurt? And I suppose that the former question is a lot more important than the, the latter because plenty of folk are quite happy to send uh, uh, young men into harm's way and indeed these days women uh, and trans folk. So how many folk would actually prepare to go themselves? If we, didn't have if we didn't have a professional army, would you prepare to go as a militia? Would you head to the Donbass region and try firing one of these... Uh, light anti-armour weapons uh, at 300 metres uh, a tank that might do 35 miles an hour and run over the top of you because we don't seem to ask ourselves these hard questions about why is it we think that another state of affairs another arrangement in eastern Ukraine um, is important and uh, what are we prepared to do to bring it about now one answer is that the reason why the Eastern Ukraine is important is because something has to be done to try and check Putin's behaviour, Russia's behaviour more generally. Which leads me to an unfortunate suggestion, I say unfortunate, 
it's unfortunate because people won't like me saying it, but, um, and indeed my friend, a former SAS soldier, told me I was wrong in saying it, just practically wrong. It's not going to have the effect you think. But I've long thought that our major problem is that we can't pay Russia back in its own coin, or we can't pay the Russian leadership, if you prefer, back in its own coin. Because we end up in a situation where we suffer asymmetric warfare all the time. And while some of that asymmetric warfare um, is responded to, so for example, the Israelis, I think, used, is it Stuxnet? They used a computer program to cause centrifuges uh, to spin out of control in, uh, in Iran. And apparently they do similar things to make life difficult for uh, other countries, including impossibly um, Russia. But the, uh, there's, there's ways of actually fighting asymmetric war which um, can be admitted to by government ministers. So, for example, we've got a, an army brigade that's responsible for using propaganda and such methods in social media, but only outside the UK to try and influence people. Um, we've got uh, a, a secret intelligence service, a diplomatic service and an SIS that's there to try and spy and to try and influence people. But we can never assassinate anybody. We can't even have British uh, state employees uh, being present when someone's tortured. We can't use information that we think might be obtained through torture. We have to have clean hands the whole way because our politicians are all democratically accountable, criminally accountable, accountable through the courts. Now, what this means is, and again, back to Machiavelli, if you're not prepared to use the methods of bad men, you give the world over to bad men. So if, for the sake of argument, the Russians are prepared to send GRU agents, military intelligence agents, to the UK and poison people, which they very obviously are, how exactly do you stop that if all you can do is either use conventional military force or use economic sanctions, which are extremely painful for the Russian people rather than the leadership? What can you do? How do you stop a thug if you're not prepared to do what thugs do? The reason why Northern Ireland proved so intractable um, as a problem was because policing is not something you can do to commandos. If someone accepts the state's protection and is within the state's boundaries and they then act as a commando rather than a simple criminal, then really they should be hung as a traitor when they're caught or treated in other ways. They can't be treated as an ordinary criminal. A murderer is someone who kills their neighbour um, over infidelity or something similar. Um, the, the robber wants the money, they don't want to kill constables. But someone who lives within the state and pretends to be a citizen and therefore claims process, they claim the right to process, but then they're actually a fifth columnist, they're actually seeking to bring down the state. That isn't something that the criminal law can deal with, which is exactly why we hang spies and hang traitors. Because if you declare yourself to be openly the servant of another state and to oppose a state, then you know the state has to be defeated uh, one state has to be defeated and then the people who are under the control of the, the, the conquering power are, uh, are ordinary folk who, in the case of Germany after 1945, get to keep their lives and get to keep their property. But in order for there to be any peace and goodness in the world, there has to be order, there have to be states. And therefore, we can't have fifth columnists, we can't have people within the state claiming pr process, claiming law, claiming the protection of the state and then seeking to bring down the state. It's like offences against the administration of justice. It's like perjury. It's like a murdering police officers for doing their job. It's the thing that a society can't tolerate. And the trouble is that Putin is prepared to 
in a sense, claim the protection of the state. He's prepared to pretend to be a responsible member of the international order, while at the same time just being a thug who sends murderers around the world. And uh, the only solution, so far as I can see, that doesn't involve imposing massive costs on the Russian people and then waiting for there to be uh, a terrible outcome, either their complete impoverishment or some kind of revolution with huge numbers of deaths, the only solution is for Western governments or a Western government to decide to allocate money um, for uh, politicians to spend however they see fit in unconventional operations with a view to securing the state. Now, apparently, the Israelis, when they murder people, um, or more accurately kill them, they assassinate them. It's not murder because the people they're killing are not under the, uh, the protection of the Israeli state. Not always, anyway. But when the Israelis uh, send assassins to kill someone, it gets signed off at cabinet level and so-called bayonets, assassins, are sent abroad to do the work. Because the Israelis have recognised um, that when you're dealing with fascists, uh, you really can't use conventional methods. If you do, you'll lose. So we have got us in a position with rogue actors uh, like the Russians that we're going to have to consider unconventional methods, in my view. I'm not sure that we can. I'm not sure that we're actually capable of conducting that conversation and saying that we're going to give 50 million or 100 million a year to the government to spend and the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary will discuss how it's to be spent uh, in unconventional operations unlimited by any consideration other than the interests of the United Kingdom. And they'll have to be accountable to somebody and that might have to be a small group of privy councillors or the Intelligence Committee. But we have to get us in a position where, to be brutally frank, if someone needs to die in order to secure our safety, then we have to be able to cause their death. And at the moment, we can't do that. And unless we find a way to have a discussion about what's necessary for our safety, then we're going to be made unsafe. And the trouble is that if, for the sake of argument, you shrink from doing what's necessary to preserve stability, then you end up in a situation where you get greater instability and greater loss. The situation in the Ukraine could easily spiral out of control, as could a number of other places. And uh, and those who would suggest that I'm uh, worse than a worse than a criminal for uh, for suggesting what I've just suggested, well, again, Machiavelli might be right. It might be the case that if you're not prepared to use these methods, then you'll you'll reap the whirlwind later on. Um, would you really, given what happened in Cambodia? have been against um, the killing of a Pol Pot. Um, do you really think that uh, all things considered, that, that breach of, uh, of what we normally think of as Christian clemency, do you really think that would have been uh, a worse outcome um, than what happened? Do you really think that if the Belgian peacekeepers in Rwanda uh, under the Canadian leadership had shot a few people before the freight containers full of machetes were uh, opened up and the radio station was taken over, do you think it would have been a worse outcome? Because we need to have an adult discussion about whether um, the uh, the high principles that we uh, we articulate on the pages of the Guardian are really a guide to how to deal with a Putin. I noticed that James Blunt had said that if uh, Spotify didn't remove Joe Rogan from the platform, then he would release two albums onto Spotify. I quite like him, he's got outlining self-deprecation, you know. I can't stand his bloody music, and uh, sometimes I think he can't stand it either. But uh, the, the row between 
uh, Neil Young and Spotify over the Rogan podcast, particularly the Malone pod- podcast that attracted so much attention. I don't understand why Young, who has written some fantastic songs, I don't understand why he simply didn't withdraw his songs from Spotify and then announce why he'd done it rather than make it contingent, a me or him situation, because they couldn't really uh, be seen to give in. And he made himself look bad by making it contingent because it looked as if he was trying to be coercive, an enemy of free speech. He's entirely within his rights to say, I don't want to be associated with this platform. But to say that I want you to suppress somebody else's free speech um, or else I'll uh, look to hurt you by withdrawing, that looks as if it's uh, it's illiberal. It looks as if it's un-American. But that was what he did, I think. Uh, that's so the sequence of events is reported. Now, the problem with this attitude um, on Young's part, and, and, in, and it, he represents a, a very, very common view. Um, lots of people have said that uh, Spotify shouldn't be hosting Rogan and that Rogan is irresponsible. He's got a lot of blowback. Um, CNN, I think, has, uh, has suffered a big downturn in viewing figures uh, and it's almost inversely correlated with Rogan's audience increasing. But, uh, but Malone, the doctor that uh, Rogan interviewed, a very long extended interview, Malone said some very precise and careful things about, for example, the consequence of catching COVID after having been, rather, to correct myself, the consequence of being vaccinated, having already contracted COVID and what that might mean, or the outcomes for young males um, from some forms of the vaccine. Malone did not just spray around anti-vax conspiracy. He said very precise things. Um, and plenty of people think that there might well be something in what he's saying. And it leads to consideration about the big problem with the platonic noble lie. The American philosopher John Searle wrote an article which I read 30 years ago, um, and therefore my memory might not be very good, but he made a really interesting point about speech acts. What are you doing when you say something? So, for example, uh, and I think it's my example, if a police officer yells across a frozen pond, uh, the ice is thin, what does the person in the middle of the pond think is being said? Because if they are an ice fisherman um, and they drill a hole through between 8 and 12 inches of ice and nobody thinks the ice is any less than 8 inches thick, um, then what the police officer, who might be a perfectly avuncular, helpful guy, is saying is, that's a good place to drill. But of course, if the ice is thin and you go through it and, uh, and you die, um, you drown, then the police officer is issuing a warning. So it's unclear what the police officer is actually saying. And in every single speech act, when somebody says, you know, anything, that's a nice hat, this is a nice cup of coffee, isn't it? Um, if we invade uh, Russia, a lot of people will die. Every single time someone says something, there's the sort of plain vanilla dictionary meanings of the words, what the sentence means in a, on a plain, plain English construction or a plain language construction. That's what the person intended when they said it. And then that's what the other person understands. So in social media, for example, it's really difficult to read tone and therefore people don't really um, understand what's been said often. And uh, that causes all kinds of upset and confusion. And uh, you know the, the, the classic question, why are you saying that, becomes really problematic. I've said it before and I'll say it again. 
um, and people don't like it. But I think it's such a big issue that's been unexplored that it needs to be said. People who've got any kind of opportunity to, to raise this issue should raise it. We know that um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors seem to be causing really major changes in the, uh, in the brains of the kids who are in the womb while their mother's taking them. Uh, very striking changes. Now, one of the things I've noticed over 25 years, um, in most of it in teaching, is that this question of intention, why would you say such a thing? What were you trying to achieve there? Why would, why would you do that? This has become really uh, live, and I can't decide whether it's just sociocultural or whether there might be an underlying reason for it. But we know that the white matter that's being apparently increased in the brains of, of kids who are in the womb while their mother takes selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac and Siroxac, it looks as if these are the parts that connect the brain up and, and make transmission between areas um, maybe more rapid or, uh, or more uh, prioritised in the brain's functioning. But this business about why would you say such a thing? What would cause you to say that? And um, what are you trying to achieve here? Uh, that's become really um, common and uh, and problematic because people use it to try and speculate about what nefarious or self-seeking agenda somebody else might have. And this is contrary to liberalism. It's contrary to the sort of 18th century achievement of uh, the sort of post-scientific revolution and the Enlightenment generally. The spread of the sort of scientific worldview to govern all our affairs and, and to form a, to form a, a kind of uh, norm for other discussions. There's an educational theorist I think I've talked about before, Olson, uh, mentioned before. He talks about literate scientific thinking, the thing that made the West great. Just trying to actually understand um, rather than judge to get your understanding in first, as it were. Don't get your retaliation in first, get your understanding in first. And uh, this business about, you know, what is exactly Joe Rogan's agenda? What is Joe Rogan trying to achieve here? What's this guy Malone trying to achieve here? Why would he do such a thing? Um, and it stems from the idea, I think, that effects matter and people can't be trusted to use the truth to produce good long-term effects, as if the West was predicated on a bad idea. Because if, for the sake of argument, you tell the truth about something like um, the, uh, the, the the relationship between the, the climate and well-being across the world, and you tell the truth that, for example, most people in the developed world are not going to be strongly affected by climate change um, to a degree that would make some of the sacrifices they've been asked to make um, rational, if you were, if they were only concerned with the, the, the self-interest of the people in the in the countries they live in, if you said that kind of thing, and it, and it was true, what would it produce in terms of outcomes? Would it lead to a reduction in uh, climate change mitigation measures in the developed world, and would that be a bad thing? Now, if it would be a bad thing, is the correct response to say, let justice be done, though the heavens fall; let the truth be told, though the heavens fall will have to tell people the truth and then try and convince them not to be selfish? Or do you think, well, people will be selfish and we won't be able to educate them out of it, therefore we have to tell them lies? Because one of the things that strikes me is, and it's the old, the old saying is, I'd rather be friends with a thief than a liar. One of the things that strikes me is it's very hard once you actually allow yourself to tell one lie or to tell one partial truth. It's hard to draw the line again. I've been out canv canvassing and... Two or three times I caught myself saying something which was incomplete. 
something about the uh, SNP or whatever. Someone's standing on a frozen doorstep in the wind and you're trying to communicate a, an idea and you say something about an SNP councillor um, and it's kind of true. It would, it would pass for true um, in most people's eyes, but it's incomplete. It's not the full truth. But the trouble is the full truth is 40 seconds and the, and the slogan is eight and the person standing on a frozen doorstep. And I caught myself uh, a few times actually opting for uh, the partial truth, or the incomplete truth, the slogan. And I stopped myself. And the reason why I stopped myself was because I could I could feel it accelerating inside me. I could feel the, the, the willingness to actually say things that were partially true becoming much, much stronger. Um, and uh, I thought, you continue down this road a little longer and you'll be a liar. My pal cycled across America and he's a poverty-stricken German and he couldn't really afford to cycle across America. I'm not sure if he cycled or he travelled. He cycled across Australia. I think he cycled across America. And he would try to beg food from uh, fast food outlets. And he discovered, because they, they throw it out after a certain period of time, he discovered that typically they would just give you it for free. Um, and then he discovered, because people would talk to him, and he discovered that if he told them uh, where he came from and uh, why he was in the US, um, they would often give him money, $10, $20, because they liked his story. He flew back to uh, Germany when he caught himself uh, rehearsing, not rehearsing the story, but he caught himself telling it um, with the intention of getting the $20 out of them. He caught himself becoming a beggar. Um, and at that point, he suddenly realised he wasn't just naturally telling the story because the other person was interested and he was interested in them. And that as a consequence, they might give him money. But that had happened the first time by accident. And he hadn't been anticipating getting the money for telling the story. When he caught himself becoming a beggar who tells stories, he flew back to Germany because he didn't want to be that person. And the trouble is that this idea that uh, other folk are not actually fit to live in the world of... Uh, the truth, the, the, the truth will not be able to be uh, told and that the world not be made a worse place. Telling the truth will actually make the world worse and it will always make the world worse into an indefinite future and will never become the kind of people fit to hear it generally. And that therefore, if democracy isn't a mistake, liberalism is. Because we can have a democracy, but we can't have a liberal democracy. Because a, a liberal democracy where the truth is spoken and people aren't intimidated and aren't made to back down and the social media giants don't control speech. Um, in, uh, in that world, we'll have too many Joe Rogans and Malones, and they'll be misunderstood. The nuances of Malone's argument won't be understood. The precision in his words won't be uh, correctly decoded. Um, the, whatever his intention was, whatever his locution means, um, whatever his uh, perlocutionary intent was, the elocutionary force of his words will be to cause idiots to do dangerous things like not have vaccinations when they should. Now, Neil Young might be right um, that people like a song more than they like an argument, uh, that they like a mood more than the truth. But if he is right, most of the assumptions we've relied on to make the world the way it has been made in the West for the last 300 years, they're all false. Poets like Young really are, I think as uh, Shelley said, the unacknowledged legislators of the world. But the trouble is that if they are, then we can have a democracy where uh, Bruce Springsteen and Neil Young get onto a stage with Joe Biden. But we can't have a democracy where the citizens make decisions uh, on any rational basis at all.
Equalities and Human Rights Commission have been critical or questioning of the Scottish Government's uh, proposals to change uh, the, the law relating to gender identification. Essentially, the Scottish Government wants to introduce uh, self-ID rather than any other um, doctor-driven or bureaucracy-driven process. And the Guardian newspaper and uh, others have suggested that the HRC are right, that there's a real conflict between the rights of females and the rights of folk who want to express a gender. And that the legislation, uh, the Qualities Act and other legislation isn't actually coherent, doesn't fit together very well. And therefore self-ID is hugely problematic and probably in its barest expression won't do. I was out leafleting uh, yesterday talking to folk before the council elections in May and uh, within the space of about four or five doors I had one tense discussion with two uh, young women and uh, and two doors shut in my face and I, I've, that's not happened at all in two weeks and I, I wondered, because I couldn't understand why I would hit such a bad streak so quickly and my pal Werner, uh, the German lad Werner said something interesting. He said, they'll all know each other. Neighbours affect each other, um, and therefore they probably have talked. So the reason why you hit a streak like that is because people like to fit in with their community, they like to get on with their neighbours, and therefore they probably shared similar opinions because one of them would be quite dominant and they'll influence the other two. I'm not sure whether that's true, but, uh, but the two young women said that they had grown up uh, under under, it was the word they used, grown up under uh, Section 28, Clause 2A of the Local Government Act, which I mentioned. Um, and uh, I said, really? I said, because that was over 20 years ago. Uh, and, and they were um, 30, I think they said. Now, that act, which prevented schools promoting homosexuality, was bad and of offensive law. Um, it should never have been passed. Uh, it was a stupid piece of legislation that was never, never resulted in a court case, as far as I'm aware. And uh, the school shouldn't be promoting any sexuality. The idea that a school promotes a sexuality is just nauseating. They shouldn't, that's not their business, you know. It's not part of a liberal education to try and cause people to have one sexuality or to think one sexuality normal rather than the other. So it was bloody awful law. But what was odd was that uh, these two girls said that they'd grown up under this legislation and they knew lots and lots of trans friends who were having really difficult times in life. Now, Section 28 Clause 2A has got nothing to do with trans rights. Uh, never did. And uh, the uh, the idea that in actual fact they'd grown up under it and therefore had been uh, victims of some significant oppression just seems, <sighs> I hesitate to use the word, but nonsense. Um, the, the idea that was actually a significant factor in their lives is just plainly false. Most teachers uh, would, wouldn't know what Section 28 Clause 2A uh, meant, even when it was in existence. And they wouldn't have been um, older than 10, 13 probably, when it was repealed, 13 at the, at the oldest. So the, the, this idea this was a huge oppressive piece of legislation, it was a nauseating piece of legislation, it was a stupid piece of legislation, it should have been repealed and it was. Um, but it does raise other issues. It raises issues about democracy, again, and the difference between liberty and democracy. Because the Scottish Parliament was very liberal, but it wasn't very democratic. 
because when uh, Brian Souter the, of the Keep the Clause campaign paid for a private poll, now of course the turnout was not high, but it wasn't that low. Uh, and I think I'm right in saying from recall that uh, people wanted the clause kept. I think they were wrong to want the cause kept, but in a democracy kept. But in a democracy, um, you, you you can't just disregard, regardless of Joe Swinson's attitude to the 2016 EU referendum, uh, you can't just disregard uh, votes. So the, the 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 idea that somehow Section 28 has something to do with trans rights and something to do with uh, a generally oppressive environment for trans folk maybe over the last 20 years, and something to do with our present travails on this issue, it's all false if you if you stop and think about it. But you can see why it's kind of thought to be true, why it's kind of thought to be related. And the answer is this kind of general mood music, this idea that there are tribes and you have to be on the right side of the argument. Now, as I said to the girls I was talking to yesterday, um, I've fallen out with people in, on every side of it um, because I just tell the truth as I see it. So as far as I'm concerned, there is obviously a distinction between gender and sex. Nobody wants to bet their house and be able to tell someone's sex from their gender. So a gender expression, you can have very convincing um, uh, women who are actually XY, uh, the male chromosomes, and vice versa. Uh, the only reason that uh, model who died a couple of weeks ago, um, shouldn't have said that, the, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, uh, but I can picture her face so clearly. Um, the... Uh, the, the model who died a couple of, uh, of uh, weeks ago, a month ago, um, was outed in the divorce case in 1970. And the reason why the outing was possible was because the gender expression was so convincing um, that uh, former merchant navy got had the operation in Casablanca. I can remember all the details, I just can't remember the name. But uh, but the, the reason why the outing was possible uh, and the reason why it caused that big court case um, and the marriage, I think, was annulled, uh, was because the, the gender expression was so convincing. So there is plainly a distinction between gender and sex. And obviously in sport, what matters is sex, and what matters in changing rooms is gender. So the discussion between well-intentioned people is what precise accommodation, what precise, if you like the word, effort is required in order for you to use the uh, women's changing rooms or the men's changing rooms based on your gender expression. I mean, I was in the changing room um, and what was very obviously a female dressed as a, as a, a boy, a man, uh, was in with a group of other um, men who were male. In other words, uh, colloquially, there was a woman in the group, but there was actually a female in the group, but dressed as a, as a male. This was not something I would have welcomed. Uh, it wasn't something I wanted. Um, I didn't feel comfortable. But in a free society, um, in a liberal society, you don't always um, get exactly what you want. Um, if you did, then it would be awfully odd and awfully boring. Uh, I did a master's degree in toleration at the University of York, uh, and I'm prepared to tolerate um, females who are dressed as men in the uh, in the male changing room. I might not choose it as my first option, but I'll tolerate it. Um, and as I say, the, the discussion around uh, this whole issue has become polarised precisely because Folk don't care about real liberal principles uh, of discourse. So I, I've, I've blocked someone on Twitter um, because they just continued chuntering about um, women's rights. And no matter how many times you say there's a distinction between women and females, and what we're really arguing about is gender expression and how 
um, significant a gender expression has to be in order for things like changing rooms to be um, appropriately used by people. So, for example, if someone who was um, XX chromosome, a female, took large amounts of testosterone, drew a large beard, um, lifted weights, and to all intents and purposes looked like a, a man, or was a man, because that's what a man means. It's a, a man is someone who looks like a man. A male is something different. But if you, if you have someone who takes testosterone, lifts weights, dresses um, as a man um, stereotypically would, uh, and walks into the, uh, the women's changing rooms, are you happy because the person's got an XX chromosome? Would a chromosomal test satisfy you? How, what exactly do you imagine the cops doing in order to deal with situations like that? So it's just absurd. This, this idea that what you're worried about is, uh, is sex in changing rooms. No, you're not. You're worried about gender. And once you accept that you're worried about gender, then you have to think about what well-intentioned people are going to accept as, a, as an appropriate expression of gender. Uh, the alternative is to have um, you know, changing rooms which are used by everybody and the, the whole thing's for the cubicles. Because in a free society, some folk are going to want to express a gender different from their sex. Um, and then you've got loads of other folk who've got you know, various chromosomal issues. So there, there is going to be an issue there, whether you like it or not. And uh, in the adult, progressive, truly liberal world that I would prefer to live in, um, you don't have two tribes. Um, what you actually have is words being used to signal ideas, uh, and then those ideas being tested for their uh, relationship to other things. So you, you ask yourself hard questions about what would you really want a person who is XX female chromosome but takes testosterone because the doctor has prescribed it, because the doctor and the psychiatrist think that they desperately need to express their gender uh, as a man. What would you have them do when they want to use the, 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 the sports center? And if you don't have an answer to that, fine withdraw from the democratic conversation.